This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the long path ahead to the Navy's 355-ship fleet. The Chief of Naval Operations explains the budget battles he's preparing for. Three dimensions to building the fleet the Navy and the nation needs. My exclusive conversation with Admiral Michael Gilday. And Capitol Hill power brokers and their Navy vision. Congressman Joe Courtney and Rob Whitman of the House Armed Services Sea Power Subcommittee. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Navy's fleet of just more than 290 ships won't grow to its 355-ship goal without a big influx of money from Congress. That was the message from the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Michael Gilday, to Congress this budget season. In my exclusive conversation with him at the Navy League Sea Airspace 2021 virtual preview, Admiral Gilday told me how he made his argument to the Hill. I really talked about uh, the need to make strategic investments in three key areas. One of them was the Columbia class uh, uh, SSBN. Uh, we need to deliver that platform one time before the end of the decade in 2028. The second area was uh, investment in our shipyards. This is a once in a century investment that we need to make in order to maintain many of the submarines that we're building today. And then lastly, strategic sea lift is another area that I felt that I feel that we've underinvested in for a number of years and we had to we had to um, we, we had to focus investments in that area as well. So those are three key strategic areas that we were uh, focused on. And then um, we also had to uh, uh, to balance uh, the budget across three big bids. The first is readiness and training. So think uh, the, the fleet in the near and the midterm. Uh, and then in modernization, so that's keeping pace with uh, or leading actually trying to stay ahead of our adversaries in terms of capabilities on our existing fleet and then uh, and then building capacity. And so really trying to balance balance across those three bins. And it becomes kind of tricky uh, because um, it's difficult to keep an, uh, an absolute balance or uh, uh, it's, it's difficult to, to keep an even balance across all three of those. But I tended to uh, uh, to prioritize current readiness in training over the three. I want to talk about each of those three in, in turn and, and uh, some of the platforms that you mentioned. Uh, in particular, though, a lot of questions about the size of the fleet. The shipbuilding plan that you released recently calls for anywhere from 320 to 370 uh, uh, manned ships um, that kind of made the target of 355 a little more fuzzy in the minds of a lot of people. Is that a fair representation, do you think, of the intent of the shipbuilding plan, Admiral? I think the shipbuilding plan wanted to, I think the intent was to present a range. Uh, 355 kind of falls smack in the middle, and of course, that's the law. And I still think that 355 is a good target. Uh, but, you know, the reality is that uh, we we can't really afford to have a Navy bigger than one that we can sustain given the resources that we receive. And so based on our current budget, um, I believe uh, the analysis shows 
that we can afford a fleet of about 300 ships. <clears throat> so uh, that includes the manning, the training, the equipping, uh, the supply parts, the ammunition, uh, the training days, the flying hours, all of that that yields a fleet that's ready to go to sea today and deter a China, deter a Russia from uh, any malign activity. Um, I hope I got at your point there, sir. Yes, sir. Um, what's the path then in the time that you have remaining as CNO, and I'm not casting aspersions on the amount of time that that may be, but what is the path to move the Navy toward the 355 ship goal at the time that the law calls for it to be? I think it's gonna be a challenge. If if our top line stays the same or if it decreases, if, if it decreases, I think that we're likely, we're, we're gonna see uh, a declining fleet in terms of in terms of capacity, and so if I if we take a look at the fact that 60% of our budget is for manpower, for operations, and for maintenance, and that those costs are increasing uh, on an annual basis at about almost two and a half percent above inflation, um, that that's going to eat away at our ability to grow capacity that'll ever approach uh, uh, above 300 ships based on based on how we're funded right now. The, the prognosis for inflation, too, moving forward is not very good. There are many experts that, uh, that think that that will go up uh, in out years, and I'll take that up with the budget nerds rather than discussing that with you, Admiral. Um, but the, the path to getting to 355 um, includes, in some cases, um, adding uh, different uh, platforms through modernization. One of the things that uh, came up and on a number of occasions in the hearings that we uh, mentioned at the beginning of this conversation was uh, platforms that you want to divest, um, legacy systems that you want to cut or eliminate. What's the state of those and what is the case that you uh, made to Congress for getting rid of some of those programs that maybe some of those members wanted to keep? So the most controversial are the cruisers. And so there are seven proposed uh, decommissionings in the FY22 budget. And uh, the argument that I made really fell across three areas. Uh, the first for the cruisers was uh, the cost to own and cost to own and operate, which for those seven ships is about $5 billion over the five-year defense plan. The second is uh, reliability. And so these ships on average right now are 32 years old. We are seeing cracks and we are seeing um, we're seeing challenges um, in the material conditions of these ships that are, to a certain degree, unpredictable. So they're unknown unknowns. When we try to deploy a ship most recently and had to bring it back twice uh, because of because of fuel tank cracks is an example of something we just couldn't predict, but that we have to react to. And it does have an impact on reliability. And we need to be able to provide the Secretary of Defense and the President uh, rely, you know, uh, reliable assets out there that they can count on uh, to do the nation's business. And the, the third is lethality. And so um, some of these cruisers uh, have the SPY-1A radar, uh, which is an analog system. Others are early SPY-1Bs. They're approaching obsolescence, uh, number one. And number two, they have difficulty actually seeing the threat based on the speed, uh, based on the speed and the profiles that uh, that we see uh, threat missiles flying at these days. And so those three factors really came into play uh, from a realistic standpoint in terms of making the argument to divest of those cruisers.
Admiral Michael Gilday at the virtual preview to the Navy League Sea Airspace 2021. Coming next, more of my exclusive conversation with the Chief of Naval Operations. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the three buckets the Navy needs to fill to be ready to fight tonight all over the world. You're watching 7 News. Welcome back. The Chief of Naval Operations is preparing a three-dimensional approach to delivering the capability he and Congress expect the Navy to deliver. In my exclusive conversation with him at the Navy League Sea Airspace 2021 virtual preview, the CNO, Admiral Michael Gilday, told me those three dimensions and the timeline he's pursuing to deliver them. It's under the sea, on the sea, and in the air. Uh, under the sea, all of our Virginia-class Block 3s and Block 4s should be delivered by 2025 with a with an undersea weapon that has uh, that's more more lethal and has greater range on the sea will be just at the cusp of delivering our first uh, constellation class frigate we'll be delivering the uh, ddg flight threes in earnest uh, and we are uh, investing in a longer range weapon the maritime strike tomahawk uh, which gives us range and speed uh, to reach out and touch an adversary and then lastly by 2025 uh, we believe if we stay on path that we'll be delivering the Zumwalt class destroyers with a hypersonic missile capability. In the air, um, we'll, we'll have uh, half, of our, uh, half of our air wings will have a fourth and fifth generation mix, which analysis has shown to be quite effective against our adversaries. Uh, tied in with that is a longer range, uh, longer range air to surface missile. It gives us greater greater reach and greater punch. Uh, and along with that, our P-8s, our new increment of P-8s are investing as well to upgrade. All of that's coming into play by 2025. And so we do have an investment strategy that incrementally gets us to a more capable, a more lethal fleet, but not necessarily a, a bigger fleet unless we saw uh, a, a rise in the top line. Um, a, a number of observers, and I include myself in this cohort, uh, Admiral, talk about the 355 number and maybe don't spend as much time as we should talking about the capability of the fleet, uh, that the fleet can deliver at that number. What's the delta between the capability that the fleet can deliver today and the capability that you envision a 355 ship or somewhere uh, on that landscape of what the shipbuilding plan has proposed, 320-some to 370-some? What's the capability that that fleet will deliver that maybe we don't have today, sir? Yes, so, so in terms of numbers, it really gets down to how we intend to fight. So <clears throat> for about the last uh, six years, the Navy and Marine Corps have been working on the joint uh, on on the distributed maritime operations concept, which I would argue is a joint concept and really is the Navy and Marine Corps' contribution to the joint warfighting uh, concept that essentially uh, uh, synchronizes the joint force together as a, as a as one large fighting element. Um, with respect to distributed maritime operations, uh, the way we expect to fight in the future is to come at an adversary. Uh, across multiple vectors uh, and multiple domains. So not only on, above, and under the sea, but also space and cyber. If I tie in the Marine Corps from, let's say, islands in the in the Pacific uh, with a lethal capability that they can also contribute to sea control uh, and sea denial, um, 
it gives you quite a, a multi-pronged approach to an adversary. But in order to exercise that concept as we have envisioned it, we need we need numbers. We need num numbers to be able to distribute the fleet across a very big area in the Pacific. Uh, and so that's part of the challenge. Now, with respect to uh, the analysis that we've done that's informed the fleet that we are investing in or the capabilities that we're investing in, um, one of the things that the, the analysis, the, the future naval force study assessment provided us was much better insights based on how we're going to fight. Uh, it gave us better indications of what we need to fight with. And so the, the capabilities and the platforms uh, that we need to uh, both deter and win. Uh, and so when you take a look at the composition of the fleet, um, it's heavily reliant, uh, as an example, on uh, submarines. Uh, and right now, our shipbuilding budget, 48% of it, is dedicated to undersea warfare and new submarines in the Virginia and, and Columbia class. Um, but also, uh, with respect to aircraft carriers, uh, our, the, the world's or the, or the U.S.'s most survivable airfields or uh, aircraft carriers. And so I talked earlier about the fourth and fifth gen uh, mix with longer range weapons associated with that. So the, the, the analysis really gave us a sense beyond the numbers what the composition of the fleet uh, needs to be uh, in order to effectively deter and fight. And, and that really comes down to capabilities, joint capabilities that the Navy would contribute to a joint fight. I'd like to move to some of the platforms individually now, if I might, Chief. You mentioned uh, the frigate program, the destroyer program, and just a moment ago, the carrier program. Uh, a successful shock test for the carrier, uh, for the new carrier recently. What did you learn from that test, and how do you think that projects to the carriers that will come behind it, sir? So, uh, so it's the first in a series of three shock tests that we're doing with the, with the Ford as the first in the class. Uh, the first one, uh, the ship did not sustain any appreciable damage uh, from that first shock test, which was uh, quite a, a large explosive charge. Uh, we'll increase the intensity of the testing here over the course of the next month and two more uh, shock trials. Having uh, served on a ship that was uh, damaged by two mines, uh, this was years ago during Desert Storm, I understand the impact um, and the value of those shock tests and understanding uh, the survivability of our platform. Admiral Michael Gilday at the Navy League Sea Airspace 2021 virtual preview. You can learn more about Sea Airspace 2021 at National Harbor August 2nd through 4th at govmatters.tv slash events. Coming next, two of the congressional power brokers the CNO has to convince. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the chair and ranking member of the Sea Power Subcommittee on the House Armed Services Committee. You're watching 7 News. Welcome back. The Chief of Naval Operations told you about the plans he wants Congress to support to build out his fleet and its capabilities. Two of the power brokers in Congress he has to convince, though, want more detail than they've gotten so far. Congressman Joe Courtney of Connecticut's chairman of the House Armed Services Sea Power Subcommittee, Rob Whitman of Virginia is the ranking member. In my exclusive conversation with them at the Navy League Sea Airspace 2021 virtual preview, Congressman Courtney explained what he'd like to see from the Navy that's missing right now. When you're dealing with a new administration um, who, again, was you know a little late uh, bringing over the budget, um, 
it's not uncommon that uh, it's not accompanied by some of the you know multi-year documents that I think um, both Mr. Whitman and I, uh, having done this for a while, uh, are convinced are, are really important, whether it's a five-year fit-up or a 30-year shipbuilding plan. Um, there is no fit up uh, and you know in fairness to the Biden administration you know that was the case uh, with the prior administration and the administration before the Trump administration it really all going all the way back to Bush uh, that um, the the incoming team you know uh, kind of reserves the right to uh, present a fit up on the second uh, budget year nonetheless that's still kind of frustrating because you know when you're trying to figure out a um, a spending plan and an authorization plan, uh, it, it would be nice to have a little bit of visibility out further into the future. Um, the, the the purported document called a 30-year shipbuilding plan, uh, I mean, in all honesty, uh, I, I see it really as the one-year budget plus um, sort of ranges of um, ships in the future, which is not, in, in my opinion, really um, what the, the law uh, Contemplated, you know, that Congress passed for a 30-year shipbuilding plan. So, I think you know there, there's obviously some signals in, included in that document about for, uh, fleet architecture and where um, I think priorities are going to be uh, in terms of different platforms. Uh, but it's still, frankly, um, not does not have the precision that I would prefer personally. And um, and uh, as a result, I think the subcommittee is doing a lot of follow-up questions both at the staff level and member level to to really press the navy to explain you know what what is the um thinking behind cutting uh, a destroyer in the in the president's budget given um you know the aging out of uh the care the cruisers you know which again is still an issue that we're trying to resolve but certainly in terms of the the cruisers uh, radars and um Air Defense Command uh, um, systems that that uh, I, I think new destroyers uh, will actually fill that 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 role. So um, again, I'm I'm really lucky to have a great partner like Rob Whitman. Uh, we've worked together for a long time. We've got staff that also is extremely stable and um, experienced, has lots of institutional knowledge, and I think um, you know as we you know the last few years. Uh, we're, we're going to be really um, using our own best judgment in terms of trying to put together a balanced plan um, in, in a, as I said, in a transition year, which is the way I would really describe it in terms of, um, you know, the leadership, uh, which is still acting um, at the Department of Navy and, um, you know, a, a new uh, team that's uh, over at the SecDef's office that, um, you know, we're basically, you um, communicating with. So I'll stop there and, and yield to my friend. Uh, Congressman Whitman, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What do you see in the shipbuilding plan and some of the other documents the Navy's presented? Similar uh, similar things, similar takeaways for you uh, to your colleague? Well, first of all, Francis, thank you uh, for, for emceeing this and thank you to the Navy League and to Sierra Space. What a great opportunity, as the chairman said, to get back together. And I want to really... Um, Thank my colleague and chairman of the, of the subcommittee, Joe Courtney, for his tremendous work. If, if you look at the 30-year shipbuilding plan, I believe that there are a number of shortcomings there. 
Uh, Title 10, Section 231 is very specific about what should be in a shipbuilding plan. This plan is not that. It lacks the details necessary to really determine uh, where we are going. It is critical that we modernize the Navy. The things that are very concerning about this plan is the lack of specificity about how we get to the statutory requirement of 355 ships and the uh, future naval force structure assessment previously said we ought to be on track to about 400 ships by 2038. This plan does not get us there. And much of what goes on, as the chairman pointed out, happens outside the future year's defense plan, better known as the FITUP. So I always argue that, you know, all of our dreams as far as the Navy that we need come true outside the FITUP, which is not a uh, realistic pathway to, to be able to get there. The thing that concerns me about this is not just the ships that it doesn't build, but the ships that it retires while not having a plan to build complementary ships. If you look at it, it retires 11 cruisers. That's 1,200 vertical launch uh, system missile tubes. That's an incredible the amount of capacity we lose there. Eight LSDs. Uh, the Commandant has said that the floor for the Marine Corps is 31 amphibious ships. This plan says 24 to 28, which is, uh, in the Commandant's words, unacceptable risk. The challenge going forward, too, is what are we doing with other platforms? It, it, uh, it is uh, not putting us on the proper path as far as building surface ships like the destroyers, as the chairman pointed out. Also making sure, too, that there's the right pathway to sustainment. And that is not just building the ships, but also making sure that we have the ship maintenance capability. Congressman Rob Whitman along with Congressman Joe Courtney at the virtual preview of the Navy League Sea Airspace 2021. You can learn more about the in-person conference at National Harbor August 2nd through 4th at govmatters.tv slash events. And all of my conversations are archived at govmatters.tv. You get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. Just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract 
to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA has got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want, here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.